but it was midday on a dry afternoon and I was driving my trusty blue 1995 Toyota Camry down a certain stretch of I-205 just north of Vancouver, Washington. At that time, I think I was in my mid to late 20s, uh, relatively newly married, uh, a father, a new father. And as I was driving that day down I-205, I was in the zone. You ever been in the zone before while you're driving? Uh, your car's going and you're, you're managing the steering wheel, but your brain isn't necessarily engaged. And I'm not sure what it was that day that I was thinking about. Maybe it was work. Maybe it was the next meeting that I was headed to. Maybe I was crunching a sermon as I'm prone to do in my mind. When all of a sudden I couldn't believe my eyes. I was driving and I looked up. Again, I was driving the speed limit, just to clarify. I was driving the speed limit in the slow right lane because I'd been accused of being a grandpa driver from time to time. And I looked up, and there was a piece of plywood headed for my head. It was probably, and it wasn't a full sheet of plywood, probably a half sheet, maybe probably four feet square, flying. And I'm not sure where it came from. Maybe it came off of the back of a truck. But one thing I do know, the piece of plywood was spinning. And it was coming for my head like a saw blade. And so I avoided all of my traffic safety education, unfortunately. My instincts kicked in. And instead of just kind of taking the plywood off the windshield, I ducked, because <laughs> ducking is going to help. <laughs> but I, I ducked, and I swerved to the right instinctually. And I lost control of my Toyota Camry. And I spun back into the left lane, where I met a lovely couple Snowbirds driving back from Arizona to Seattle in their brand new Cadillac Escalade, and my Camry hit their Escalade and it spun me out. At that point, the seatbelt activated, the airbags deployed, and my Camry came to a halt in the grassy median between the northbound and the southbound lanes. That was my first car accident. Now, to settle your curiosity, the other cars sustained very minimal damage. Uh, the snowbirds walked away completely unscathed, and they were very sweet and very kind to me. My Camry was totaled, but we got so much more money in insurance claim than it was worth. I tell you, it was part miracle. And the other drivers that were around on that day, they vouched for my plywood story that actually I wasn't making that up. So as for me, all the damage that I incurred on that day was a fragile psyche, and a few burn marks on my wrist from where the airbag had knocked them off the wheel. So all in all that day, to walk away with a few burns and a little shakiness in my gut, uh, I, I, it could have been way worse. But for me, one thing happened on that day. That's the day I became a believer. Not in Jesus, I actually had trusted Jesus before that. But that's the day I became a believer in seatbelts. That's the day I became a believer in airbags. Up to that point, I'd used seatbelts. Up to that point, I had theoretically valued airbags. Never experienced it. After that day, I literally, in that moment, I entrusted myself to the airbag. I entrusted myself to the seatbelt. And it wasn't theory, it wasn't thoughts, it wasn't some sort of idea anymore. I believed in seatbelts. I believed in airbags. 
I had actual, real-life, experiential seatbelt trust. I know what they feel like when they tug on your shoulder. I know what airbags smell like when they deploy, and there is a smell if you've ever had them deploy. I had first-hand, real, experiential trust in the seatbelt, in the airbag. Again, more than an idea, they gained my trust. Open your Bible, if you haven't already, to the book of John. John chapter 14, verse 1. Here's my sermon tonight in a nutshell is that Jesus wants to make you a believer. Jesus is out to earn your trust. Not just that you would assent to some supreme being in the sky, but that you would entrust yourself. That you too would have firsthand, real, experiential knowledge of what it means to... Again, it's... Not all the same, but to feel the seatbelt. To sense the airbag. Jesus believes, in his own words, that he's your best bet. That Jesus is your best bet in troubled times. So these words, John 14, 1, they come from this scene. We've been talking about this scene. It's the upper room. And Jesus is in the upper room celebrating the Passover one final time. He's reclining at table in the evening with his disciples. They're gathered around close. We talked about this last week. John, the beloved disciple, he's assuming the posture. He's leaning back into the bosom of Jesus. There's tension in the room. There's misunderstanding in the room. There's confusion flying in the air. Judas, one of the disciples, has just left to go into the night to betray Jesus, but not everyone knows what's going on as Jesus leaves that night, as Judas leaves that night. Jesus himself then, he starts talking about leaving, and no one understands fully what he means. And so it's into this scene of kind of chaos, question, Jesus, why are you talking about leaving? What's Judas going to do? Someone's going to betray. What is going on here? It's into that scene. This is what Jesus says. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is what Jesus says to you tonight. This is what Jesus says to us tonight. Let not your heart be troubled. Let's be honest. Anybody had their hearts troubled this week? These words to me are a little ironic. That Jesus in chapter 14, verse 1 says, let not your hearts be troubled, because we just read in John 13 last week that Jesus' heart was troubled. (laughs) as he was talking about and thinking about Judas betraying him. It's John 13, 21. It says that Jesus himself was troubled in his spirit when he talked about the betrayal that was to come. So Jesus was experiencing trouble, and now he turns to his disciples and says, but let not your heart be troubled. I also realize that some people hear these words of Jesus, and it can sound trite. 
Or maybe if you've ever struggled with, with uh, severe mental health, anxiety, depression. Or maybe you've had someone use the Bible in really unkind, unhelpful ways. Like, really? It's hard for you? Well, just read a Bible verse and call me in the morning. But we've got to realize, John 14, 1, that, that Jesus himself has something to say to our troubled times, and he has something to say to our troubled hearts. And this is the word that Jesus brings to a group of disciples that were confused and scared and disoriented and despairing, and it's meant to be good news to your soul tonight. This series is called The Great Invitation because yet again, Jesus invites us. I believe that Jesus has an invitation for us tonight to let not our hearts be troubled. Because we're, we're invited. We've been talking about this. He, he's invited us to know God. He's invited us to intimacy with God, with others and for others. He's invited us into the posture that John had last week to, to lean back into his bosom, which sounds awkward and hard and yet beautiful, the imagery. There is a way for our troubled hearts to find rest. There's a way for your troubled heart to find rest. There's a way for their troubled hearts to find rest. Have you ever been troubled by the world? Maybe this will be helpful for you to kind of even process it. Tonight, I had someone ask me these questions before. When you experience trouble, where in your body do you experience it first? I'll, I'll give you a couple options. Does, does the trouble of the world or the trouble in your life show up in a spinning mind where your mind just starts racing and trying to fight in solutions? Do the troubles show up in a racing heart where you start feeling it? Your, your heart literally just starts pounding faster. Does it show up in your gut where you get a pit in your stomach? Or some of us have the trouble show up in our shoulders. <laughs> After a while, we're like, why am I? Oh yeah, I've been doing this for hours. Maybe you recognize trouble showing up in your body somewhere real. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And then he goes from there in verse 1. He says, believe in God, or some translate that, you believe in God. The invitation is, believe also in me, as he's speaking to a group of Jewish men who had believed in God, and now the invitation is, well, don't just believe in God, but believe also in me. Jesus is asking them to take a step of deepening into the reality that is himself. Again, Jesus is out to gain your trust. Whole life, actual, real trust. Now, the challenge in this passage is he doesn't give us the how. And we're all very practical Americans. You're like, tell me how. And Jesus in this passage doesn't tell us how, but instead he tells us why. Why should you trust him? Why, why would you believe and trust in Jesus to actually have something to offer your troubled heart? Jesus offers us three reasons why. We'll talk through those tonight. Sometimes when we understand the why, the how becomes a little more clear. Here's the first one. So Jesus drops some incredible statements in this passage. Here's the first statement that he drops. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. 
Why should we trust Jesus in troubled times? Jesus says, because there are plans for your future. And again, this is happening in the course of this evening, in the course of this conversation. And they're having this meal, and Jesus talks about leaving. And they're like, what What are you talking about leaving, Jesus? This is what initially seeds their fear, is Jesus talks about leaving, and Peter doesn't like that. That after three years of intense discipleship and friendship and community, Jesus says, we've come to the end of the road of this season, and things are changing. And that's why Jesus begins to talk like this. Let me read the passage to you. Chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. So Jesus says, yes, I'm leaving. And he says, but that's the good news. For the disciples, that was the bad news. They're like, what? Jesus, you can't leave. We've, we've, we've got so much more to go. You can't go. Where are you going? Jesus says, no, the good news is I'm leaving. And the reason why it's good news is because if I go, I can prepare a place. And if I prepare a place, then I can come back. And when I come back, I will have you be with me. Jesus addresses their present trouble, the trouble of their heart, the trouble of the moment, the trouble of that specific situation. He addresses their trouble with future promise of reunion. And he goes and talks about preparing a place. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that, that conversation about preparing a place, it has uh, sparked people to write songs about that. It's sparked different conversations about the Father's house and where is he going and does he have to build something or what's going on. And um, others have, have focused on the idea that in this passage, Jesus is referencing common Jewish wedding betrothal practice, which was common in that day. Uh, the father would select a bride for his son. A bride Christ would be established. The man and the woman would become betrothed. There would be consent and sealing and cleansing. And then there would be a separation between the bride and the bridegroom. And the groom would go and prepare a place. And there would be separation. And when the place was prepared in the father's house, he would go back and get the bride and bring her to himself for them to enjoy their consummation and the celebration of their wedding. And so I think there may be some of that idea lingering in this conversation with Jesus of this idea of I'm going to prepare a place for my bride. But even more than getting into the nuances of where's the place and what does it look like and how many rooms are in the mansion of the Father and what's the dimensions of my house in glory, more than architecture or house structure, look at verse 3. What's the biggest source of comfort that Jesus speaks to them? The biggest source of comfort Jesus offers is himself and the promise of future reunion. Jesus is excited to share with them that he is going to prepare a place. And in the preparation, there'll be a time when he comes back. And in that time, there will be a reunion. Jesus is talking about short-term separation for the sake of long-term union. 
and we're living right now in the time of separation. And the time of separation is hard. Has anyone ever done a long-distance relationship? I have. It stunk. It was hard. I've shared some of this before from our past, but following high school graduation, I was 18 years old, hopped on an airplane to go to college in the Chicago suburbs of Wheaton, Illinois, while my then-girlfriend, Callie Logan, hopped in her Honda Prelude and drove to Southern California. We were dating as high school sweethearts, but we did our freshman year apart. We did a long-distance, 1995, no-cell-phone, dial-up internet, long-distance relationship. It was a lot harder to do long-distance relationships back then. And October of 1995 was when I got my first phone bill. I didn't know there was such thing as a phone bill. My parents always paid those things. I didn't know there was such a thing as long-distance charges. What are those? A phone call from Chicago to California cost extra? No one explained that to me. And I got my first phone bill, and my jaw hit the floor, and my stomach hit my throat. And I had to come up with, I don't know, I think it was a couple hundred dollars for my first phone bill, which to an 18-year-old with no job, that felt like all the treasure of Fort Knox. which led me to a job board near my college post office. And from the job board at my college post office, I pulled a little tab, and I, that led me to a quaint Midwestern brick house of this older lady in the Wheaton suburbs who paid me money to rake her leaves and shovel snow and put up her Christmas decorations and polish her silver. I had never polished silver in my life. And I found myself, like, I'm polishing silver. What am I doing? What was I doing? Trying to pay my phone bill. And do you know why I did it? Do you know why I borrowed some dude's bike on my floor and rode a BMX bike in the snow to shovel snow and polish silver? because I concluded that she was worth it. And seriously, no joke, there's times I'm like, what am I doing? And the thing that kept me going was the vision of one day there would be a reunion where I'd see her. No more letters, no more mailed packages, no more long-distance phone call. But the vision of reunion kept me going in the short term. And Jesus speaks these terms over his people. Saying, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going, I'm separating, I'm leaving, but I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I will come back that where I am there you may be also. That's the good news that he offers their troubled heart, is that there is a future plan. This is going somewhere. 
it may be confusing, disorienting, painful. Your heart may long and ache. I'm going to prepare a place for you. There's future hope. And then Jesus goes on from there and he drops the second statement. All right, so he says, I go to prepare a place for you. There's plans for your future. Also then, Jesus goes on to then say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he offers them the hope that there is a person for their present. So he talks about the future, but he also talks about the present. So there's this conversation between Jesus and Peter. So again, if you notice there in verse 4, uh, Jesus says, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas was like, excuse me, sir. No, we don't. Jesus says, you know the way. Nope, we don't know the way. What are you talking about? How can we know the way? And that's, Jesus drops this verse, verse 6. Among the confusion, like, where you're leaving, it's actually a good thing, and you know the way. No, we don't know the way. Where's the way? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But even in this conversation with Jesus and now Thomas here, there's misunderstanding. Jesus says he's going back to prepare a place. Thomas starts asking these questions. We don't know where you're going. And as Thomas is asking the questions of Jesus, he's talking about destination and directions. Like, I don't know. I I can't pull it up on my phone. Can you give me the coordinates? Can you give me the directions? I I don't know where you're going. Thomas is saying, I don't know how to geographically get to where you're going. And Jesus kind of flips the script and reminds him that the good news that he is offering them is not just about directions and destination. It's not about facts or figures or theorems or philosophies. The way that he is offering is not a what but a who. The way that he is offering is not a program or steps, but it's a person. Jesus brings them back to the present and he offers himself and he refocuses them and their confusion and their lack of understanding and he says, no, listen, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life and Jesus gives them a relational answer to their questions. He offers himself. And again, we love facts and figures and charts and graphs and theories and proofs, but Jesus brings it back again and says, no, 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 no. Here's the thing. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And I realize that this kind of language, especially in 2021, turns some people off. Like, ugh, there's the exclusivity of Christianity. You mean out of all the religions and out of all the philosophies and out of all the people all over the world and all the cultures, there's only one way. It sounds arrogant and it sounds narrow-minded. Are you saying that Jesus is the only way? I'm not saying it. Jesus is. And again, the reason why he says it He's not just talking about philosophy here. He is making a relational claim. If we're talking about 
a road map or a destination like a mountaintop, there may be many roads to get to the top of the mountain. There are many roads you could take from Harbor Church to get to my house, and we may all end up at the same destination. In a math, there may be an equation, and there may be many ways to solve the math problem. I find out in helping my kids with their homework, they don't want you to do the math problem the way that I know how to do the math problem. But there's many ways to solve the math problem. Jesus isn't talking about a math problem, and he's not talking about a roadmap or a destination. He's talking about relationship, and he is saying that he is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way relationally to the Father. A person has a right and has the right to be exclusive in the way that they are known. That's how relationships work. I've talked a bit about my relationship with my then-girlfriend, now-wife. We've been married now for 22 years. We were engaged for a year. Before that, we dated for four years. So if you do the math on that, we've been together about 27 years. When I first met her, I discovered that one of the ways that she wanted to be known was through sports. She played volleyball, and she played basketball, and she played softball. And when I was very first trying to get to know her, Do you know how many softball games I had watched when I first met her? Zero. Do you know how many softball games I had attended before I met her? Zero. Do you know how many softball games I attended from age 18 to 25? Lots. Now, I could have said to her, hey, Callie, it's great to meet you. Softball's a horrible sport. I want to get to know you through drama. Would you just join drama and then I'll maybe watch your performances that way? Like, I would never do that because you don't, you don't do that because a person has, has the exclusive right to define the terms of the relationship. And it was through that means that I got to understand and know her. And God who exists as Father and Son and Spirit as He engages us in relationship and makes Himself known Again, this is not just Jesus making a philosophical statement. This is Jesus saying, I have relationship with the Father. And if you want to know him, you know me. Because I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. He is the one who has been in union with the Father since eternity past. And the way then to have exclusive relationship with the Father is through the Son who makes him known. It's good news that the Father can be known. It is good news that God, who made all things, can be known. He has made himself known through Jesus the Son. But again, for many of us, uh, faith or church or religion becomes about academic theory. And I just hear Jesus smashing academic philosophical theory here. I love this quote from Eugene Peterson, who says, The Jesus truth 
only when it is wedded to the Jesus way produces the Jesus life. So Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And oftentimes we just want to hear the Jesus truth. And the Jesus truth is important to hear. Doctrine is important. Beliefs are important. The truth is important. Our worldview is important. But he says that he is the way and the truth and the life. The Jesus truth is wedded or married to the Jesus way. What is the Jesus way? It's a way of life that Jesus is inviting you to follow him in. It is a way of living that is oriented around the kingdom of God. It is repentance-based. It is humble. It is in the shape of a cross. Jesus says, follow me and come and die to yourself and your broken ways and I will show you the way to live. So he wants us to believe. It is truth. It is doctrine, but he's saying it's not just about believing something so that you can just get out of hell someday. He wants to reorient our whole world. It's the Jesus way and the Jesus truth that leads to the Jesus life. This is eternal life. To know, this is John 17, to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Or a reminder from Dorothy Day, who reminds us that all the way to heaven is heaven because he said, I am the way. And that can be maybe a little, ooh, what does that mean? But all the way to heaven, we get to experience the life of heaven. Meaning that heaven is not just something we get to go to one day. It is. It matters for eternity. Jesus does say, I go to prepare a place for you that where you am, where, where I am, there you will be also. There is something to look forward to in the future, but in the life and person and work of Jesus, heaven has come to earth, and he's invited us to live and know and follow him now. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am interested in engaging you in your life and your heart and your day-to-day here and now. I don't want your heart to be troubled. I'm the way. I'm not leaving you in the dark. I am the truth. I am the life. And then he offers this third statement. John 14, 7. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus keeps dropping these massive statements. Next slide. He not only says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, your future is a, is a picture of reunion with me, and your present is about being reshaped around me, but also, whoever has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father, and he's talking about the privilege that he's inviting us into that I would say we have yet to comprehend. Because Jesus makes all these statements that are just mind-boggling. That his goal is to reconnect us to the Father and that he is the way to that life. And then Philip chimes in and is like, well, well, actually, if you just show us the Father, that'll be enough. 
which is another way of saying like, Jesus, I've been with you for a few years. I'm still not sure, and it's not enough. You're actually not that good. Just show me the Father. I want to see, show me more. Give me more. Prove some more. And Philip kind of just lays this egg. And Jesus says, have I not been with you so long and you still don't know me? But actually, what's happening here is the Father is being revealed through the Son. And Jesus says, this is actually the offer that I'm giving you, is for you to step into the divine mystery of Father, Son, and Spirit. And you get to participate in all that God is doing. He says, the Father's in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, so that if you see the Son, you've seen the Father, and to hear the Son is to hear the Father, because Jesus says, I only speak what I hear the Father saying. There's this beautiful revelation of Father and Son, and we're going to get to this soon next week. He says, it's the Spirit is going to come. Jesus is inviting them into an all-encompassing relationship of Father and Son, and soon to be, from their perspective, Spirit too. And then in verse 12, Jesus goes on and says, if you believe in me, you get to join the party too. And by faith, you get to accomplish the same things that I do and more. (laughs) Fascinating. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do works, the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The privilege of eternal life is an invitation by Jesus himself for you to experience what it means to be in relationship with Father and Son and Spirit and to join in His work in this world. The offer is actually participation in the divine family. And I'll be honest with you, I don't even fully know what that means. (laughs) But that's the offer given to the disciples. Let not your heart be troubled. You're invited in to participate in the divine family. The the promise here isn't, believe in me and you'll get rich. Believe in me, trust in me, and all your problems will go away. It's not believe in me and you'll have success. The offer is, I'm going to go prepare a place. And one day we'll be reunited face to face. And in the meanwhile, I offer myself as the way and the truth and the life. And I'm inviting you into experiencing all that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are doing. You get to join in on too. So up until this point, the disciples have asked three questions, made a half-question statement, and then there's a fifth question that comes after this. We'll talk about that next week. They don't understand what Jesus is saying. They keep asking questions. Jesus keeps answering them. But notice what he keeps doing. Next slide. Peter, he's uptight about the plan. And Jesus reassures his presence. And and Peter's uptight about the timing. And Jesus talks about future reunion. And Thomas is uptight about directions. 
and Jesus reveals his person. And Philip is uptight about his experience with the Father, and Jesus unveils the Father and Son privilege. Every question they keep asking, Jesus brings it back relationally to himself. They want to know where and how and when and what about. And Jesus says, I'm going to be with you. I give you myself. I I invite you into the Father and the Son. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's inviting them to, to have a greater experiential understanding of God in our lives. Real, actual, experiential. Seatbelt pulls on me. (laughs) Airbag deploys. I know what it means to entrust myself to God. So maybe, maybe tonight, you're here you're exploring things of faith. Maybe you're watching online. You're like, I don't know about this God thing. I'm glad that you are here. Jesus invites you to take a step of faith, to entrust yourself to him. Maybe you are one who has followed Jesus for years. But maybe the troubled, the troubled times we live in has impacted and created a troubled heart. And I'm not here to offer trite answers or cheap Bible verses, but I'm here to offer what Jesus has offered, which is himself to you. And maybe you need to examine that there's an area in your life that has been shaken in trouble that Jesus would say tonight, would you trust that back to me? Or maybe the trouble is so big right now for you that you've forgotten his greater promises to you, that he's going to prepare a place for you because he wants one day he will come to take you to be with himself. And we've lost sight of that. Or maybe it's just an honest prayer tonight, which has been said in the scriptures before, I believe, help my unbelief. But I tell you this, the intimate life of knowing God is built on trust. And Jesus is here to make you a believer. To trust him. So as we close this part of our time tonight, before we sing and take communion, I just want to give us 30 seconds to maybe uh, be quiet before God. And maybe there's one piece of your life and story right now that just feels shaken and troubled, that Jesus would invite you to bring that part to him tonight. To entrust that again to himself.